How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. Welcome back. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and today we are beginning a new series called Be On Guard. As you may know, Michael taught through 1 Peter last year, and so we begin 2019 with an expository teaching series of 2 Peter. We'll also be releasing some more Ask Dr. E episodes. So if you've called in a question, we're working on answering those as we speak. If you haven't called in, but have a biblical or theological question for Michael, call us. It's 615-281-9694. I'll make sure that number is in the show notes of this episode, and we would love to hear from you. But now let's turn to an introduction of 2 Peter, originally recorded at Stonebridge Bible Church in Franklin, Tennessee. Consider the United Methodist pastor, Reverend Laura Young. She believes that pro-life protesters who march in front of Planned Parenthood or other abortion providers have, quote, a misguided faith. She thinks that we should bless clinics. She went out to an abortion facility called Preterm in October. This is back in 2014 in Cleveland and blessed the clinic. This abortion mill was also uh, related to a death of a young African-American girl named Lashika Wilson, age 22, but nothing really ever happened. Reverend Young says, accepting abortion is like this. Christianity, like most faiths, is found on love. Watching protesters shout judgment and hate based on what they call religion is horrible. Is that loving God? Is that loving your neighbor as yourself? These are two contraindications. I mean, this is like, these things don't even belong in the same sentence. Forget your opinion on abortion or what right or wrong about that. I happen to be uh, staunchly pro-life, man's made in God's image. The moment of conception, everything there, everything there, hair color, eyesight, height, weight, mesomorph, ectomorph, endomorph, everything at the moment is there. All that's required is time and nourishment. It's unique among all things. It's creation. It's God's image bearer. And she says, well, that's hateful. Or consider Bart Ehrman. Some of you might know the name. Bart Ehrman was a Moody Bible Institute grad, went on to Wheaton College, and also to Princeton to earn a PhD. He's the distinguished professor at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Some changes in, in Bart's theology over time, he doesn't believe anything about the Bible that he believed all his early life. In fact, he's gone on to write 20-plus books to dismantle and debunk Christianity in the Bible. His most popular best-selling book is called Misquoting Jesus. He's the single most popular professor on UNC's campus. If you ever watch NPR, History Channel, or um, Discovery Channel, A&E, NPR, when they talk to a religion New Testament scholar, they go to Bart. You see, what began as a foundation here moved for all kinds of reasons. Lastly, consider Christopher Van Hall. Christopher has a church called the Greater Purpose Community Church in Santa Cruz. Anybody been to Santa Cruz lately? 
It's a fun place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Santa Cruz is an interesting town. A friend of mine lives outside of Santa Cruz with Michael. They say California's left coast. Actually, it all starts in Santa Cruz, and it all rolls across the country. Uh, it's an interesting place. This Greater Purpose Community Church wants to open a brewery and a restaurant and give the proceeds to Planned Parenthood. Interesting idea. He says a church that serves beer and gives the profits away to places like Planned Parenthood is really exciting to me. Now, these may be extreme examples, but what I'm trying to get you and me to understand is we live in a culture, the frog in the kettle's long done. We're all, we're all frog legs been boiled. Uh, we live in a culture where scripture is, a, oh, by the way, it's an also ran. It's a book we can't understand. It's a book that you can't interpret. It's a book that's too far away from where we are today because we don't read it anymore. Because we don't study it anymore. These and a host of voices are affecting not just young minds, but old minds. I'm astonished how many people have changed their faith and their theology over time because you get tired of getting beat up. You get tired of sounding like you're this old, angry person yelling and screaming hate. I mean, if they say we're hateful, that hurts. I mean, we're not immune to, to injury, right? You're hateful. You don't support the family. You don't love people. Well, I, I kind of see it. No, I'm not saying I'm hateful and unloving, but that's the culture that we're in. I want us to look at the little epistle of Peter, the second epistle of Peter. It's 61 verses. It's a very short little letter. But it's pithy, it's poignant, it's powerful, and I think it'll be a good reminder. D. Edmund Hebert writes, the second epistle of Peter is a ringing challenge to Christians for their steadfastness in the face of flagrant false teaching within the Christian church. He's not talking about the enemy outside. He's talking about what has happened within the church. His audience is a mixture of Jew and Gentile believers. It's written between 64 and 68 AD. We know this because Nero dies in 68 AD. And we also have some timeline here that Peter probably died a little bit before Paul. Uh, we know a little bit about Peter's death. But the, it's, it's in his old age, and we see some hints of that in the text. The epistle is written simply to expose the dangerous and seductive work of false teachers. It warns believers to be on their guard so that they won't be led astray by the error of the wicked. And those two verses at the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 7 to 18, I would argue is the purpose that Peter wrote this 61 verses, the way we count verses, 61 verse little letter, was so that we would understand false teaching is alive, it's seductive, it's in the church. And, oh, by the way, uh, you need to be aware of this and be on guard to sniff it out. This doesn't mean we run around playing sort of a theological Gestapo. It doesn't mean we're mad at people that have bad theology. Uh, one of my, my uh, friends who's like the staunchest Bible teacher, theologian I know, John MacArthur, when we will talk about a person who's maybe has a different view of something, he has an inimical way of saying, oh, they're still on their way. They're still on their way. He might sound a little, you know, bulldogmatic at time to time when he's in the pulpit, but if you talk to him one-on-one -on -one about people that have some wonky ideas, they go, oh, they're still on their way. That's a good attitude. They're still on their way. We can't expect everybody to believe everything the way you and I believe it. 
but there must be some fundamentals, there must be some foundations. And interestingly, in the local church, we're to be aware of what's good, what's false, what's true, what works its way in. Well, a major theme through this book as well is understanding knowledge and practice of truth. Knowledge and practice of truth. You in any field of engineering, medicines, science, any field where you went to school an awfully long time, you had to learn information. It wasn't just book knowledge, you had to practice it. Whether it's an instrument, whether it's in a, in a surgical field, whether it's engineering out, whether on a computer, a technology, whether you're a musician who's learning how to use technology and pro tools and keyboards, you must understand something and practice using that thing. You can't just read books all day. At some point, you got to go out and use a saw and a hammer and a drill set to see if you can actually build something that you've read about in a carpentry book, for example. So the idea of knowledge and practice and this is a baseline for truth. What do I know that's true and how I practice it? What do you know that's true about your faith? And how do you then practice it? A lot of us live in this, yeah, I know this, I know this, but I can live however I want. If you've heard me in the past, I use the expression horizontal Christianity. I fear the, the most churches have become horizontal in their Christianity. It's all about me, my, I. My passion, my job, my vision, my dream, my family, my children, my, my you know, whatever, my homeschooling, my tutorial, my career, uh, my side hobby, I, me, my. That's not to say that's not important, but there must be a vertical beginning. How do I serve Christ? How do I serve the kingdom of God? How do I serve his cause, his people? Any of you do the Experiencing God, the 13-week study years ago? It was, it was a very helpful little study. And um, he used a phrase about uh, finding out what God is doing and put your shoulder to the wheel. And uh, I took, this is years ago I was, when I was in a church in Northern Virginia, D.C. I, I required all of our pastors to begrudgingly go through this 12-week study. Pastors don't like to do things. And um, so they all went, and of course, they just pick it apart, and they're critical of the whole thing. You know, I said, look, your people are all drinking this Kool-Aid. You better know what they're drinking if you're going to stand up and tell them what's right and wrong, right? So we had a lot of fun. Uh, and I, I amended my wheel at the back of that workbook. I said, this is putting, find out what God's doing, which is a euphemism. Find out what God's doing. And put your shoulder to the wheel. And then I added, and then he lets you pretend you're pushing. He does not need you and me. He does not need you and me. You and I need him. Get that straight. He does not need you and me. We need him. And to shift that horizontal Christianity, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just asking the question. When I wake up in the morning, I think about my cup of coffee and my cup from my espresso machine, which died this morning. I think about my chair and my desk and my office and my computer with my monitor up the way I like it in my car and my truck and my habits and the food I like to eat. I mean, are you any different? I mean, my. That's our condition. If we can once in a while think vertically, is that a good thing? Yes. I need God's word, God's spirit, God's people to help me think vertically because otherwise I'm a horizontal Christian. It's all about me, my, I, God bless me, God bless me. Cindy and I have dear friends who, the, he, he went through two liver transplants. His daughter just had her second a few weeks ago. She's home in a home now for the next few weeks while they're in Minnesota and the post-transplant trauma. And when, when you go through, I mean, it's one thing to go with your spouse to go through illness and difficulty and disability. When your child goes through it, I mean, just, you know, you're toast. 
you're just toast. And goes through it twice, you're burnt toast. You're just gone. And to watch them walk through this, their view is how they're representing Christ. And it just boggles Cindy's and my mind. They're kind of otherworldly people. Sure, they worry about will she live and will the transplant, will the organ be rejected and so forth. Sure, anybody would. But they're concerned about the nursing staff, the people in the hospital floor that they go to, their doctors, their psychiatrists that come by and see they're about their mental well-being. It's remarkable. And I wonder, would I be that way if I was at that hospital? Would I be as concerned about those around me? Vertical Christianity is how am I serving God and his people and people that need him, or is it all about I, me, my? Second Peter will challenge us in this area. I want to give you a, a couple of ways to think about this. Understand again, Nero's dead. Uh, the language that Peter uses is striking. Destructive heresies, denying the master, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Listen to this one. Those who indulge in flesh and in its corrupt desires. Is that descriptive of today? This is written in the first century. Like unreasoning animals, self-willed, following after their own lusts, they are stains and blemishes, ouch, reviling and deceptions, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. 16 times in the letter, we're going to read the word know or knowing or some cognates of it. Uh, again, I use the New American Standard Bible for a lot of reasons. You can use whatever you want, but know or knowing. And so Peter is driving this point home. Know what you believe before you try to practice it, okay? Said another way, doctrine is the only cure for false teaching. When Harvard, Princeton, and Yale and Andover Seminary began. All of these institutions were designed for what? Do you know? To train men, how politically incorrect, to train men to be pastors and missionaries. Men, male-only club. If you go to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Andover exists no more. If you go to these seminaries today, they have everything but Jesus I have a friend who has a chair on one of these Ivy League campuses, beautiful campus, gorgeous campus, probably one of the top five, six beautiful campuses in, uh, in the country. And you go visit and you see this, you know, B.B. Warfield Library, all this, I mean, collections of books that would rival any collector. And he's been there for almost 30 years now as a covenant Presbyterian evangelical chair. Interesting story how they got this chair endowed. And he's on staff there ministering to students. He says, Michael, we have everything here but Jesus. The irony. Look at church denominations that have over time moved away. Look at Bible colleges. Look at Christian parachurch organizations. The axiom is organizations never drift to the conservative. They always drift away from this. They always drift away from this. And Peter's going to warn us about this even back from the first century. Now, let's think about three Sections. This book is real easy to divide, and the chapters fall very neatly in Peter's writing. The first is the critical need to grow in Christ. The first chapter is going to emphasize you've got to grow in Christ. This is your and my responsibility. No one can make you grow. You have to choose to grow. It's critical. 
And for those of us that, you know, we're 40, 50, 60, 70, we think we kind of got it figured out. I want to, hello, McFly, you can't stop. You can't stop. A friend of mine sent me an MIT study this week that, that referenced uh, that the problem with people that are aging is they think about aging. Oh, that's easy to stop thinking of getting old. The attitude we have in life is so powerful and if you and I think about our situation, well, I've been there, done that. I mean, when you say I've been there, done that, you've stopped growing. The critical need to grow. The Christian life cannot be static. It must grow. When you have a little baby, my oldest daughter is here today. So happy to see her. Did you bring your son? Golly. <laughs> little Isaac is nine months old. He's already reading. <laughs> He's that advanced. Um, when you have a child, you want that child to grow. You, you remember, those are your moms. If they're not gaining weight, you get worried, and you're feeding them, and you're counting. Count. I mean, I, I look at how they raise children today. I go, that's amazing anybody ever survived as far as I, I can't believe any of us lived. But it's normal for that child. In fact, if they don't grow, they start giving them hormones now, and they, new foods and supplements and all kinds of stuff because you're supposed to grow. We raised four children. It's amazing how quick an athletic child can go through a pair of shoes. You remember this? Been that long ago? You can buy a pair of soccer shoes for a kid, and a week later, they're like two years old. It's amazing how they, you expect them to grow. If they don't, something's wrong. When do you stop growing? Medical science may say there's a point when we start to die. I would argue the moment you're born, you start to die, technically. But when do you start growing? When you stop growing, probably somewhere in your high school, early college years, your, your physique, but you continue to grow in other ways, right? You continue to learn. Your brain continues to learn. You and I have got more brain power than we probably access. I, I joke about software I use. I probably use 5% of what Microsoft products can really do for me. I probably use about 1% of what my brain can do for me. You and I can continue to learn. And studies have shown that adults who continue to learn are better off in all kinds of ways. Take up a language, take up a hobby, take a college course, audit some class, pick up some new thing. Some friends of ours just took up golf. God bless them. I put that in the category of cats. But anyway, <laughs> something new for them to do. Learning stimulates. What more important? The living word of God. How many of you had professors in college or high school that were boring? Can you remember the one or two or three that weren't? They were standouts, weren't they? And if you think back on why, they never stopped learning. They never stopped learning. It's the same in every field. Engineering, medicine, science, education, music, any, any, any area. Keep How much more as a believer in Christ? You cannot stop learning. Second thing the book's going to teach is the clear and present danger of false teaching. The clear and present danger of false teaching. It's subtle. It's sneaky. It's deceptive. Too many churches get sidetracked into all sorts of seemingly good things. You can do XYZ ministry over here. It may be a fine ministry. I will argue if you're not presenting the person and work of Jesus Christ in said ministry, you're not doing said ministry. You can have the best food kitchen, the best soup kitchen, the best halfway house, the best recovering uh, program for addicts. You can have a house for children or teenage girls who are pregnant. You can do all kinds of things. If you're not doing that, 
patently and clearly to share Christ and help them grow in faith and knowledge of Christ. It's just a social services effort. Doesn't mean it's bad or horrible or terrible. It just means it's not back to making disciples of all nations, teaching them what Christ taught you and me. Thirdly, it's having a confidence in Christ's return. Those are the three chapters, the critical need to grow in Christ, a clear and present danger of false teacher that leaks into the local assemblies and confidence. Now think about this logically. What's he telling them? You got to keep growing. Number two, keep discerning. Keep that nose clear and smell what's going on around you and don't be afraid. Smile at the future. One thing I have shared for years and it you listen to a preacher carefully, they're talking about themselves most of the time. How can you and I smile at the future? Chapter three, I know Christ is returning. I have a confidence that Christ's word is true. I have a confidence that we know how to deal with false teaching when it comes in. We don't have to be Gestapos. We don't have to be mad at the world. We don't have to be going around hammering people that have wrong ideas. We're loving, we're careful, we're kind, we're merciful, we're patient. They're still on their way. They're still on their way. Let's give Christ time. Let's give the Holy Spirit time. Let's sin and conviction have time. But I don't need to fear or worry about, oh, goodness. I mean, theologically, we should be chicken little. I mean, the theological sky has fallen on this country, in my opinion. And it's fallen on this country. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, my oldest daughter, who's here, so I get to embarrass her. Um, when she was a little girl, I remember we were watching a softball game, and there was this umpire's stand. And her stupid father, it's my fault, put her up in it so she could see. It was really high. And she wanted to go up there like any kid wants to do something. When she got up there, she got a little freaked out because it was really tall. Well, because it was, uh, no one was supposed to be in the umpire's chair, there were no rungs on the lower part. So just my height to put her up there. Well, when it was time to come down, the distance between where she was and where my hands were were a little further than she was comfortable with. And I couldn't climb up to get her. There was no way. If I'd have gotten up there with her, we'd have both had to jump down quite a distance. Make sense? So now I'm the idiot father that's put his precious little daughter up in this high umpire thing. Her mother is very happy with me. (laughs) And I'm standing there going, I will catch you. I got you. I'm not going to drop. It didn't matter what I said. I could not reassure her enough because she'd grown up a little bit. She got smart. Dad ain't always there. Uh, and that exchange of me trying to coax my little girl to say, Daddy will catch you, has haunted me all my life and my relationship with my father. Why are we afraid of the future? Because there's a gap between what I'm experiencing and where he is. That's called faith. That's called faith. Do you believe daddy's going to catch you? Daddy will not drop you. Believe me, this time I will not drop you. I might worry about you. Your mother will kill me. I will not drop you. And I will never put you up there again, I promise. The gap between what I believe, what I know, that void, that's, that's the in-between. And we all live there. We all live there. You and I want a confidence. Well, let's jump into this real quickly. Just the first four verses, we'll continue, and we'll take this apart slowly, even though it's just 61 verses, there is an awful lot of meat. Number one, the critical need to grow in Christ. 
Let me just read the first two verses. In fact, why don't you read them with me on the screen? Let's read these together. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the words bondservant, but just for review, a bondservant was the word doulos, was a slave. Peter addressed in the first letter that we were slaves to sin, as does Paul. We're shackled to being sinners. When, when the apostles came to Christ, they willingly indentured themselves to be a slave of their master. Slavery is a horrible word any way, shape, or form in our economy of language. For the apostle to say, I'm a slave of Christ, he did not go into slavery with shackles and Jesus made him his master. You're my slave now. This is a volitional indentured service. I'm willing to be a slave of a master. Why? I was a slave to sin. This master forgave my sins, gave me eternal life, blessed me beyond measure. Why wouldn't I follow him? So it's a poignant word used in our New Testament. I'm a willing bondservant of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the way Peter ties this together, he says a bondservant and an apostle. Now, all the New Testament writers, Paul, Luke, James, uh, John, all of them refer to themselves as bondservants. So there's somewhat of a unique badge. I'm a willing indentured servant to the master Jesus Christ. I'm willing to follow him. I put the chains on by my own free will. But when he adds apostle here, it adds a different level. There are four criteria for the office of an apostle. Remember, Jesus picks the 12 and Judas defects. Judas is the son of perdition who trades Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, there's a discussion about we've got to replace Judas, basically. And so they go through this process to replace him. Paul later becomes an apostle, and his story is a little bit different. But the four criteria in the New Testament are consistent, and you can find them. I'll give you a couple of references. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 is the easiest one. But in Acts chapter 121, we read, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John. Why is that important? That's when the identification began. The baptism until the day he was taken up, one of these becomes a witness with us of his resurrection. So from the beginning of identification to the resurrection, he was with us the whole time. So we can distill this into four things. Number one, he was with Christ. Number two, he performed the works of Christ. Number three, he witnessed the resurrection. And number four, he was chosen by Christ. Now the order isn't that important, but those were the four criteria. Christ had to choose him. He had to be with him, he had to work the works of Jesus, and he had to have a, be a witness of the resurrection. So Peter says, I'm a willing bondservant, and here's my credential. He handpicked me by the Sea of Galilee. I was with him the whole time. I worked the works he worked, and I saw the resurrected Christ. In fact, he saw him one of the first ones, right? So this, these credentials, if you were, weren't bragging. It was what they've seen and what they've heard and what they witnessed and what they told others. Just as a sidebar, why do you think Paul spends so much ink defending his apostleship? 
Why do you think he refers to him as the least of these? He was an also ran. He was not with Christ those three years. Did Christ choose him? Yeah, on the road to Damascus. Did he work the works of Christ? Yeah, he sure did. Did he witness the resurrection? Yeah, yes and no. He saw Christ in a vision. Christ spoke to him. So he's forever defending his apostleship at the same time deferring to, I'm the least of the apostles. Which, of course, creates tension because human people, human, humans like titles. We like roles. We like rank. And so Paul worked overtime. Well, the authority comes from the fact that Christ chose him to be a unique follower of his and that he is a willing bondservant to him. Then he writes, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Let me just take a pause here and talk about receiving. The word literally means to obtain something. The word goes back to lots, used two times in the New Testament, where a lot is cast, one of them for the robe. Remember the soldiers divide Jesus' earthly possessions and the tunics one piece? We don't want to cut that up. That's a nice piece of cloth. That's like, you know, that's like a cashmere. Let's keep that together and throw lots for it. The lot wasn't the point. It's the result of it. Okay, you won. You got to take the robe. The word obtain means you get it. You received it. Sewn into the way this word is used is you did nothing to get this faith. And depending on your denominational background, your childhood upbringing, or your own sense of how things work in life, we're, we're all if-then people. If I do this, then this happens. Faith is the appropriation of something that I had nothing to, to, I couldn't get it. I couldn't earn it. Faith is confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen, the author of Hebrews says. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace, by God's unmerited, unimaginable love toward you and me, he chose us and we responded by faith. Faith is the means by which we appropriate something we did not deserve. Faith is the means by which we appropriate something we could never earn. That make sense? Faith, when, when you get a gift on your birthday from a friend, you do not pull out your checkbook and say, let me reimburse you. It's a gift. What do you do? You take the gift. What's the action of taking the gift? I trust that Cindy got this for me for my birthday. Cindy trusts that I bought this for her birthday. I mean, she does, she's never offered to reimburse me, nor I her. Let me pay you for that. Someone takes you out to lunch on an anniversary. You say, thank you. Did you earn it? No. Did you deserve it? No. They're just being nice to you. Faith is the means by which. It's how we appropriate a gift. This is so important, men and women. The baseline of the gospel is he died in your place on your behalf instead of you. Nothing you can do would ever make God love you more. Nothing you have ever done would make God love you less. It's by faith. And that's the marvel of the gospel that makes Peter say, I'm a willing bondservant. I was a slave to sin. Now I've been forgiven of that sin. I don't have to be a slave to sin. And you love me and you care about my future. You care about my life. You care about my job. You care about my family. You care about filling the blank. And because of that, I'll be willing to follow you. That's the response of faith, which Ephesians 2.10 is often forgotten, that he prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. So sad we all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but we don't know Ephesians 2, 10. You were gifted and wired and called and loved for a reason, and that reason is beyond horizontal Christianity. Well, 
Hebert writes again, the word involves the personal response of faith. It is clear. The entire epistle is directed to those who have personally accepted the message of the gospel. But to be valid and effective, a personal faith must be grounded in the objective revelation from God. Knowledge, truth, practice. I know something, am I practicing it? Make sense? Remotely? I got to know that I'm saved by faith, not by works. Now I have to practice being saved by faith, not by works. That's where the letter goes. Well, he continues to talk about our growth in Christ, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Very quickly, verses three and four, his divine power. Again, Peter's underscoring, you didn't do this on your own. You didn't study world religions in college or university or high school or read a bunch of books and, or read on the internet some articles about which is the best faith. And because, uh, you know, life hacks said, these are the 10 best faiths. You should pick this one. This is the editor's choice. Uh, this is not how we make this selection. It was by his divine power that prompted in us a response. God's word is sufficient, is what Peter's saying in these couple of verses. God's word is sufficient. Now, God's word doesn't tell me how to fix my lawnmower. It doesn't tell me how to fix my espresso machine, unfortunately. But it does give me wisdom to live in matters of life and faith. It does give me wisdom in matters of managing my money, managing a relationship called marriage, trying to help my children grow and love Jesus Christ how to be a witness, and how to be a friend to people who are hurting. It does give me all kinds of information that is inexhaustible. And that's why when Cindy and I get up and study in the morning, it's because morning by morning new verses I read, because I forget everything I've read before. And if I didn't write it down, chances are I won't remember the cool insight I had four years ago when I first saw it. Because I'm just getting slower. doesn't mean I stop. Limitations don't mean we stop, right? Hebert writes... For Peter, divine was an inseparable quality of the person and work of Jesus. The deity of Jesus is the foundation for the entire epistle. I think our view of Christ must change. Our view of Christ has to be not our friend, not our buddy. I don't like to be, I mean, you know me well enough. I can be a little snarky at times. But there was a period when the worship music was calling Abba Daddy. And that just really went the wrong grain across me. He's not your chum. He's not your buddy. He's your God. Now, he does say he no longer calls us, what, enemies, but friends. God called Abraham. Abraham would say, hey, Jesus, give me a high five. The apostles, hey, Jesus, give me a high five. Low for high, too slow. You know, they didn't do that to Jesus. Jesus called them, and he, he called them his friends. And he further turned up the heat. If you love me, you will obey me. Truth, knowledge, practice. Demonstration of our faith, not to prove I'm saved. No, demonstration of my faith. If I really believe what I say I believe, do I love him? How do I love him? Vertical Christianity. I can't live there all the time. No human can. 
but that's our goal and our objective. Well, years ago, I was pushing wrenches for a living, and um, I was a mechanic. I know it's hard to believe, but I was a diesel mechanic and a motorcycle mechanic and pushed wrenches through college and back in high school in the 1970s when you could actually work on a car. Uh, I would do oil changes and brake jobs and rebuild carburetors for friends. And when I was in college, I would help all my poor college friends work on their cars because they didn't have any money and they didn't know what an air cleaner was or an oil filter was. And so we would, we would uh, bring them up in the back of my apartment complex, put them on jack stands, and I would do all I could do for them for the, for the uh, uh, cost of the, uh, the price of the parts they would buy. And typically I lost both time and money, but I did it anyway. Uh, so I knew a little about things. I could change water heaters. I could fix appliances. I could take a disposal apart. I can do sheetrock, although I hate sheetrock. It's up there with cats. Um, you know, I could do a lot of things. As I've gotten older, I can't do those things anymore, and, I, and things have gotten more complicated. I called a plumber some time ago about an issue, and he came out to my house, uh, and he pulled out of his back pocket this worn-out, I won't use the word I want to use, this worn-out uh, tool, a channel lock, to go after some uh, decorative plumbing, uh, you know, hexagonal bolt. And I said, uh, don't you have a better wrench for that? And he gave me this, you know what, look. And he went ahead with this old worn out tool and took my shower part. And I'm just grinning, you know, I got all those tools in my toolbox. I go get the guy the right tool. And it just, it just it's, you can tell it still irritates me to this day. And I don't even live in that house anymore. Um, you know, you need the right tool for the right job. That's a rule. That's a rule. You don't take a pair of channel locks to a decorative plumbing fixture. You get the right wrench that fits it properly so you don't mar or ruin it for the next person that has to work on it. This is the right tool for the right job. And this is what I want my life to reflect. This is what I want your life to reflect. Not trends, cultures, and isms. Not ologies. Not the latest fad. Not the latest interest of good, well-intentioned churches. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying, if we don't have the truth, our practice doesn't matter. And herein lies, this is the right tool for your life of faith, your life of following Christ. He loves you, and he wants to use you. You're the right tool where you are. You understand this. If you don't, that's a great learning experience to find out how's he wired you? How's he made you? Are you leveraging that for him, not just horizontal living? In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.